Welcome to the Demystifying Diversity podcast, where each week we examine topics related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm Dara Lise Lyons, and I'm speaking to you today from the stolen Lenape lands known as Philadelphia, utilizing the colonized space of the internet. Last week, we explored Black resilience in the face of slavery and segregation. Today, we'll look at how inequities caused by the enduring and ongoing impacts of systemic racism continue to disadvantage and discriminate against many Black Americans. Next week, we'll be amplifying stories of joy, love, and healing. But it would have felt disingenuous to do that without first speaking about the disparities that exist between those whose ancestors stole land and labor and those whose ancestors built America but were denied the ability to own any of it or to be free. If you haven't listened to last week's episode, please stop now, go back, and listen. It'll be helpful to have that context before diving into the struggles faced by many Black Americans today, struggles which can be traced back to slavery and segregation. If you allow me to go from a historical point, is that education has always been one of the barriers or a hold to keep certain groups from advancing. And so a lot of those have been carryovers to present day, the way that we educate folks. So in the past, in the beginning, it was illegal for slaves and to have an education and learn to read and write. And then it, there was the shift after slavery where it was more about putting them in subservient school settings. And as you fast forward to present day, those overtones from those days of slavery and post-slavery still have an impact because people are have a disconnect with school because they don't look at school the same way, either from those descendants of those who were ostracized and left out, where they don't see schools as being a very important part to help move them on because they it's never been a part of their social DNA because it was historically left out. That was Anthony Stevenson. Dr. Stevenson is currently the principal of Radnor Elementary School in Wayne, Pennsylvania, and an adjunct professor at Rowan University, Temple University, and Villanova University. In 2017, Dr. Stevenson was elected to serve on the Board of Commissioners for the Lower Marion PA Township, where he has been serving ever since. So he has intimate knowledge of the education system. In fact, his dissertation research focused on the impact of poverty and social capital in education, an impact that has both a causal and a correlative relationship with the past. During segregation, many Black students received a substandard education with inadequate educational resources. Black schools received less funding and outdated books, and Black teachers were paid less than their white counterparts. But despite what you may have been led to believe, putting an end to legal segregation hasn't actually stopped separate and unequal education from continuing within the United States. According to a report prepared by the National Center for Education Statistics, from 1992 through 2019, 45 percent of black students attended high poverty schools, compared with 8 percent of white students. And the average reading and math scores for black 4th, 8th and 12th graders has remained continuously lower than that of their white peers. 
Many black students today are attending underfunded schools, just as was the case during segregation, with one notable difference in today's education system being that modern students aren't seeing their identities proportionally reflected in their educators. During the 2017 to 2018 school year, for example, only 7% of public school teachers and 11% of public school principals were Black. Meanwhile, Black students comprised 15% of the public school population. Something that hasn't shifted from segregation to now is the pay disparity between the average salary for Black teachers and that of their white counterparts. On average, Black teachers earn $1,400 less per year. Millions of Black students depend on public education to pursue their life goals and career trajectories. And millions of Black parents expect public schools to educate and empower their children. Yet the systems are failing them. And it's been that way throughout our collective history. If we hope to increase equity and inclusion, we have to look at how present-day racism is perpetuating cycles of inequity. Racism is like a pink elephant in the world right now. It's like everybody wants to sweep it under their carpet. Nobody wants to talk about it. And I'm not scared about talking about it. That was reggae artist Ghetto Don Visionary, whose music is inspired and informed by contemporary events, spirituality, and a willingness to examine racism as an addiction. So pretty much someone introduced me to this 12-step program called Racist Anonymous, and I was like interested. I was like, wow, I didn't know they had a program for that. And like, you know, I heard, you know, people speaking and talking about George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and, you know, and it's way more than that. You know, Martin Luther, Malcolm X, you know, African slavery, the Holocaust. And I'm not being biased because it's not just black people. It's all the racism has been going on for years. You know, people celebrating Thanksgiving and in 1637, it was a massacre. So that was racism. So that really triggered me to do something musically and use my musical platform to do something for the culture. Through songs like Racist Anonymous and Racism Vaccine, Ghetto Don Visionary invites listeners to confront the dynamics that keep racism alive, both within the United States and within themselves. By repeatedly pointing to the deadly consequences of systems of supremacy, as well as his own personal struggles growing up Black in a racist nation, Ghetto Don Visionary hopes to use his platform to make a difference, just as we at the Demystifying Diversity podcast hope to use our platform to make a difference. And while data and statistics provide a helpful context, nothing is as moving as personal stories. Take for us to fight it To realize that we all are one Make unity and inner peace The only reason Cause we need better Need so much better We deserve better
William Tyrone Toms, the co-founder and chief creative officer of Rec Philly, a multi-million dollar creative hub and incubator based in Philadelphia, who was recently named one of Forbes 30 Under 30, spoke with me about his upbringing in a high-poverty, high-crime section of Philadelphia. So for me, those humble beginnings look like, you know, my family's from the Germantown section of the city, Wayne Avenue, Wayne Junction, to be specific, if folks know that area. So growing up there at the start, I believe my father had when he was 17 or 18 years old. You know, my mom was maybe 21. And in my childhood, some of the most important events, you know, to just kind of like chronicle it was I had an uncle who was murdered at 16, my father's baby brother. Behind that, my father ended up going to prison. He's sentenced to a 30 to 60 year stint in prison. He's in year 22 of that right now, which is something that I've been navigating my entire life, just trying to understand that relationship and that dynamic and what that means for me as a black man in America and all that. And then I've also, I have a mother who battled a drug addiction my entire life. Will has done a lot of interpersonal work to move through his early childhood wounds and build a multi-million dollar business, empowering others to live their entrepreneurial dreams. But he had to overcome a lot of early life trauma to get where he is today. Likewise, Kwaisi Asar struggled with early life trauma before making it his passion and his purpose to empower individuals to transcend undesirable, dysfunctional, and harmful conditioning by cultivating spiritual competencies. As the author of No Sir, Breaking the Chains That Bind the Spirit, Kwaisi shared about how early wounds led to a lot of self-destructive thoughts and behaviors. From the very beginning, being abandoned by my mother and my father really did create a destructive force within me called resentment. And whenever you have a resentment, it's like drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. So that's exactly what I did. I got addicted. I got addicted to alcohol, to drugs. Now, make no mistake, I no longer blame my addiction on what my mother and father did to me. Because when somebody passed me a drink, I willingly took the drink. It's not that I directly blame those conditions, but those conditions contributed to me becoming a drug addict and and, an alcoholic. And that was a 17 year span of my life. So when we talk about external and internal demons, I have had to fight them all my life. For Kwaisi, introspection, therapy, love, and spiritual cultivation have been his salvation. 20 years in Narcotics Anonymous allowed me to not only deconstruct all of that negative conditioning, but to begin to build a new house on a new foundation of spiritual principles. And so that led to not only me, you know, realizing that I wasn't never going to be anything, as my great, great grandmother told me, she said, you ain't shit, you ain't never going to be shit. You know, you really have to be careful what you tell your children, because like that stuck with me. I ain't shit and I will never be shit stuck with me. And, and I, I don't know, somehow on some level, I believed it. But after I got clean and after I started putting the building blocks of spirituality into my life, I started to realize, hey, you know what? It's possible that you could go back to school. It's possible that you could go to college. So fast forward, I'm a professor, right? A tenured professor at a top tier academic institution. 
But the external and academic achievements wouldn't have been enough without being accompanied by inner work. The therapist helped me to see that my need for achievement was so great because I was determined to be able to look back at my father and say, I didn't need you anyway. So it it had to do with the little boy that was inside of me that I never really got in touch with. And I never really healed from all those abandonment issues. And I hated my father. And, And I did everything I could to be able to look back at him and say, you know what? F you, I didn't need you anyway. And it helped me to realize that I hated him so much because I loved him so much. So there was a lot of healing that went along with me discovering that about my drive for achievement. And support. Kwaisi hasn't had a tremendous amount of that throughout his life, but he has had enough to act as a salve on his wounded soul. Well, I've never had deep, meaningful relationships with many people. I've lived in eight different cities and... I'm not one to get attached. I don't have deep attachments. My wife is the only one that I could say truly, not only has she seen and witnessed, but she's experienced along with me. And I'm talking the good, bad, and the real ugly. And she has been my rock. And I owe it all to her. There were times in my life where I would have rather die because it's a heck of a thing to get to a place where you don't love anybody else and nobody loves you. What point is there to continuing to live? And, you know, she loved me at times when I couldn't love myself. She didn't throw me out like my mother and my father did. Even with all the hurt and the harm that I caused her, she never discarded me. And I give her all honor respect and love because she's always been there to hold me up. You know, and that's the story of my life. It's been women, whether it was my great, great grandmother, who I think prayed me to stay alive, or my mother, who I know loved me, even though she gave me up, she loved me. It's been women who have saved me. Will Toms also credits the love of a woman as an integral part of his ability to move beyond the pain of his past. So I was raised by my grandmother, and that was very pivotal, right, to to my outcome. And I think the key difference maker for me than other folks who may have very similar backgrounds and upbringings, I would really accredit to my grandmother. My grandmother is my biggest support system, my biggest cheerleader. Like that is my heart. She is a warrior. And I believe that ultimately all of the things that she was able to provide for me, which really came down to physiological and mental and emotional safety, right? And that edge of accountability when I needed and didn't want it, you know, and and really just this really incredible faith and belief in myself and my abilities. That's what she provided me. And now as I think about it, the way she was able to make sure I had access to what I needed when I needed it, even though we were broke, right? And I didn't even know I was broke until college, for real, for real. She provided the resources and she preached the importance of education, you know, and like she gave me that safe space. And when I really think about it right now, that's all I aspire to do for each of our members is to be that resource provider and that educator and and that supportive person. 
By advantaging some and disadvantaging others, racism creates sets of circumstances that lead to many people not having what they need, both materially and emotionally. And this can impact everything from livelihood to longevity. I know that just by the data, I live in a city that is 42% Black, but I also know that Black people only own 2.8% of the businesses in Philadelphia. That's a huge gap. Why? Especially being from such a rich cultural city as Philadelphia, right? Where when we think about Philly, we think of sports, we think of music. So it's like, I know that those are business entities. Those cultural entities make up billions of dollars of industry, but why don't we own any of it? And then I also know that if you live in 19133, which is North Philadelphia, right? Or 19132, which is very close to where our first space was in Ninth and Dolphin. And if you live in where I live now, in like Queens Village or Society Hill, there's literally a 20-year difference in life expectancy based off what zip code that you live in in the city. And these places are less than three miles apart. So when we talk about access, that is the access gap that I want to close. The life expectancy, who gets to live longer, right? By two decades, who gets to have ownership, which we know is the only way to really build freedom in America, right? You got to own something. You have to have equity. So for me, it's been this journey of understanding the people that look like me and the people I love. What do we care about? What do we understand? And that's culture. So how do we preach and teach equity and ownership? through that first and foremost as the vehicles for us to drive change. Here's a short message from our episode sponsors, without whose support the Demystifying Diversity podcast wouldn't be possible. As we've seen more than ever in the last couple of years, health is critical, and a big part of physical, mental, and emotional health is providing our bodies with the nutrients they need, which is why I'm a big fan of supplements. But not just any supplements. I get all my supplements from Vita Supreme. The company's products are amazing, and they're offering Demystifying Diversity podcast listeners 10% off on everything at their online store. In fact, they've put together a special Demystifying Diversity podcast listener page where you can get any or all of my favorite supplements at vitasupreme.com slash pages slash diversity Or you can take a look at their website and purchase any of their many products. When you're ready to check out, just enter the code DIVERSITY to receive your 10% discount. That's vitasupreme.com slash pages slash diversity and enter the code DIVERSITY for 10% off. As you may or may not be aware, Demystifying Diversity podcast partner Zach James is a proud graduate of Temple University's School of Sport, Tourism, and Hospitality Management, STHM. Go Owls! And has experienced firsthand STHM's ongoing support and investment in each individual student. Both last season and this season, as part of their ongoing effort to prioritize diversity, equity, and inclusion in their business practices and strategic plan, 
STHM's Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion has provided invaluable support and resources to the Demystifying Diversity podcast. And STHM's Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion is taking an active role in so many other incredible initiatives, from spearheading student-facing DEI programming to faculty education to collaboration with various corporations and organizations. As the sport, tourism, and hospitality industries have become more globalized and integrated than ever before, STHM acknowledges their responsibility to help move these industries forward by minimizing polarization and creating equitable, inclusive, and diverse leaders. To learn more about Temple University's School of Sport, Tourism, and Hospitality Management, visit sthm.temple.edu. That's sthm.temple.edu. Equity and ownership create opportunities, and the opportunity gap between many Black and white Americans can be traced back to a gap in education and access. When you go to school in a certain school setting and you show you could be the valedictorian of that school in an urban or rural setting, you still may not have had the same type of opportunities as a student who comes from another school that had other places. You know, I grew up in the rural South. And so when I graduated from high school, algebra two is the highest math that we had. And my best friend was Joseph Gerald. And Joseph Gerald was the smartest dude I've ever known. But Joseph wanted to be a doctor. He wasn't able to be a doctor because we didn't have the science of that level. So he had to go to undergrad, grad school again, and grad school again until he was eligible to do what he wanted to do. Even students who receive a quality education may experience systemic discrimination that requires them to exceed beyond what their white counterparts may have had to do to achieve the same results. The thing that my father always says, you got to be better than everybody else. If you're Black, you're going to have to be better. So in some ways, that's what I've always tried to do. That was Walter Johnson, a former computer programmer, systems engineer, and technical instructor who served in the United States Army prior to becoming the first Black systems engineer in the banking marketing office for IBM. Walter is also Demystifying Diversity podcast partner Zach James's uncle. He told Zach and me about how he had to strive above and beyond his white counterparts, something that LaToya C. Smith, editor and literary agent, also experienced during her time working for a traditional publishing house. I think my biggest frustration was the lack of diversity. They were trying to make strides in diversity, but I think when there's only one editor of color, it's a little hard for people to really get it. Like, I think they want to get it, but sometimes it's a little hard to really understand. And it was hard to get projects through. And I just started to feel like my name was suffering. I wasn't getting certain submissions. I wasn't being considered. And then it it got to a point where my colleagues would be like, oh, I'm going to work on this. And I'm like, okay, but I've been talking to that person or I've been getting this. And I just felt like I was kind of losing myself, losing credibility, losing projects. And I was frustrated. LaToya has long since left her position as an employee to establish her own entrepreneurial endeavor as a full-time editor and literary agent. And I should tell you, she's my literary agent. So shout out to LaToya. 
Her experiences in publishing speak to a widespread problem in the publishing industry, as well as a larger problem of disparity that spans industries and isn't unique to the United States. Brittany Chung Campbell, a book coach and sensitivity reader who helps coaches, consultants, and entrepreneurs go from an idea to a compelling book with consistent sales and specializes in amplifying the voices of authors with historically marginalized voices, spoke to me about the ramifications of inequity in publishing, from the dollars and cents costs to the emotional ramifications. What we saw in um, last year with hashtag publishing paid me, what we saw was there was a huge disparity between like white, cis, hetero um, writers who are getting huge book advances. And then we're seeing on the other spectrum, like people like Roxane Gay, who had like, I'm not too sure how much she made, but it was like so much lower than like her male white counterpart. And how discouraging is it being an unknown author who's just trying to, trying to become visible somehow and then you see one of your idols like Roxane Gay who's just like yeah I'm dealing with it too and you're like damn <laughs> like are you kidding me but one of the good things of seeing something like hashtag publishing paid me was that it brought so much of these issues to the light and people are being held accountable and so now we're seeing people talking about some of these issues with diverse stories and marginalized writers and it's time to now frame these issues into business issues and not just human issues and what is politically correct. Like, no, if we frame these issues into actual business issues, then we can find those solutions to have not just inclusive spaces, but more accountable spaces. LaToya shared more about some of her professional experiences. So I've definitely been to a lot of conferences, a lot of parties, mingles, lunches, etc., where I am the only Black woman or a woman of color, period. And sometimes it's cool because you give the authors that feel because then they all come right like, oh my God, I was so nervous. You know, I wouldn't find. And so it kind of sucked a little bit though, because a lot of times they would pitch me things I didn't take, but they just thought they might have a chance because we both shared at least that part of the cost. But there's definitely been comments that I think were meant to be savvy or cute and they were really fucking racist even at that pitch fest i had a white male agent kind of say so hey latoya you know what's your story and i kind of felt like you didn't ask anyone else at this table like what's their story in terms of why they're here but you want to know what's my story and it was interesting because before i could even answer the woman who had been sitting next to the whole time who had no line the entire time but she was super sweet but i like had constant people she's like oh my god you don't know who Latoya is and I mean she just ran down my whole bio you know which was kind of satisfying I'm like yeah you know but I was like the fucking nerve who are you to ask me what's my story like why am I here and the crazy thing is is that I had either met lunch with him back in my early editing days or you know he had submitted stuff to me so it was like wow I'm just not even like you don't even remember who I am and I've had that happen before like people just they have crossed paths with me and I get it. You meet a lot of people in this business, but how many of us are really in, you know what I mean? It can be insulting and you almost have to like decompress from the experience of just always putting on and being professional and not getting pissed and cursing someone out and telling them about their bigotry or their undertones. You know, I met with one male white agent one time and he started speaking Ebonics to me and I was like, 
I'm sorry, isn't this like a professional lunch? Like, would you walk up to a white male editor and be like, yo, what up? Like, what are you doing? So I've definitely had my share of uncomfortable situations being the only, and then also being able to shed light on certain things because I was a person of color. Latoya mentioned the need to remain professional and composed in the face of other people's ignorance, which is something many of those I spoke with shared about. For instance, R&B, pop, and soul singer Brittany Monet, whose song Better has been our season two podcast theme song, uses her music as part of an effort to raise social consciousness. Brittany told me how the need to present as okay, even when you're not, can lead to a lot of emotional pain, and then to concealment of that pain. One thing that I noticed, and I have family who have dealt with clinical depression and things like that, and that stems from men in their 60s that are very close to me to sisters of mine, not literally sisters, but you know what I'm saying, we're all, we're all one, sisters of mine that are younger than me. And one thing that I see when it comes to our community is we just, and it's starting to shift now, which is awesome, but we don't really talk about how we feel. This is just my experience. But, you know, we're kind of taught to just eat our feelings and stomach how we feel because of the system, right? If we speak up because we're upset about, I work in corporate America, so if we're upset about the way that something is done in corporate or we're upset about an experience that we may have dealing with somebody else who's very racially insensitive or something like that, then we're historically, not always, and not in every single situation, but, you know, we're, we, we get that title like the angry black person or the overly sensitive black person. So I think from a societal standpoint, we're kind of taught to hide how we feel in a way, but then also in our families, because we've had to endure so much as a people and because we do have so much generational trauma, we don't really talk about across the board the importance of mental health and emotional intelligence and having conversations about how we're feeling. Will Tom shared about emotional concealment and containment and how therapy has helped him not just to cope, but to become more emotionally expressive and self-honoring. But he said many Black Americans who might benefit from that kind of support aren't receiving it. The reality is there's three challenges, really, against most people that maybe come from the same place as I come from. One, they may not know where to look, right? Two, if they know where to look, they may not even be able to afford whatever the, the copay or the sliding scale is just because they don't have it. But then three, which I think is the biggest one, is the connotations that we're up against as people of color, especially my men of color, who unfortunately have to navigate this whole hyper-masculinity, hey, we don't, we don't do therapy, right? We don't talk to people about our problems, right? Like my black people and I love us so much, but we're the worst when it comes to like, hey, it's time to go to the doctor, right? Hey, it's time to go to a therapy, right? Because of all of the, the communications that come with it. So because of all those things, the access is just different. So I feel that for us, that's another one of the reasons we lean so far into culture. We lean so far into art because that's the only place that sometimes we feel seen, right? For the things that we experience on the regular. Will mentioned culture, storytelling, art, music, and fashion as modes of expression and reclamation, and we'll be exploring these and more next week. But for now, I want to look at the struggles that arise when people's stories are silenced. So I have personal experience when it comes to being afraid to share my writing. 
my first experience kind of feeling othered was, you know, I was in journalism school and I had a professor basically tell me that like no one really cares about the brown girl's experience. And he was saying it from a place of let me just warn you, you're, you're going to have to really like get your foot in the door because of your identity. And it was like a shot in the chest for me. And I was like, oh, like, why can't I just fit in with everyone else and just like not have these barriers? But it's something that I've always worked on because I've internalized a lot of that feedback that was like, nobody cares. You need to write about other things that sell. Um, and so I thought, okay, that means my story doesn't matter. And that means that my story doesn't sell. And I just was like, great. <laughs> but I've learned that's not true thing is, is that when you experience these moments of being discouraged because, you know, you might feel like you may not fit into the mainstream idea of whatever success looks like, you end up gaining a really interesting array of lived experience that can help you create a more unique perspective. In recent years, there's been a growing awareness of the benefits of diversity, equity, and inclusion, DEI. But something that doesn't seem to be as much of a focus is another letter that goes beyond D, E, and I. The B that gets left out, which is belonging. I can be present in an organization, but have no voice, have no opportunity or see myself being able to progress or grow or to advance, which means while I'm there, I'm just there. So often we focus on, well, let's just recruit more and more and more. But if you're not recruiting across the organization and the makeup is only in a particular segment or certain status within the organization, you maybe haven't diversified anything at all. You have butts and seats, if you think about it in that way. But when you get up to those spaces where decisions are made, if that's not diverse as well, then you truly, you don't necessarily have diversity in the way in which you think. That was Don Trahan, licensed professional counselor, national certified counselor, approved clinical supervisor professor, international consultant, and global leader in diversity, equity, and inclusion change management. He's known professionally as Dr. Don. At 35 years old, with five degrees, two of which are doctorates, Dr. Don finds himself regularly contending with intersectional discrimination in the forms of racism and ageism. Recently, I had someone to tell me, you couldn't have possibly accomplished everything that you claim to accomplish. And I said, really? Because I think I, I know what I've done, but it's so interesting. And when you think about being a Black male in society today, being very accomplished, and because I have been blessed to travel all over the world, it has added on a layer of doubt for so many people. And for me, it's been really a struggle because you almost feel like you have to overcompensate, and then I, I refuse to do so. So it's this it's kind of internal war with myself of, well, how am I going to show up in this space without losing who I am, but at the same time making it very clear that I am this individual with this background that no one handed me anything. I worked extremely hard. Hard work is only one part of the picture for those driving change within industries and seeking to create greater diversity, equity, and inclusion. Chief diversity officers, I mean, they're being hired at a massive rate. They also are resigning at a massive rate because organizations are, are not really invested in the way that they should for this critical role to drive sustainable change 
They want to be able to be reactionary because of things that have happened. Unfortunately, most recently, the murder of George Floyd led to an influx of chief diversity officers being hired. But the position does not report to the CEO. The position does not have the necessary resources to support and drive change, including people or a a formal structure. Then all you've done is hired someone. And that is where you have to really look at equity and inclusion to ensure that it's not only a racial element, but you're looking at all parts of the organization. And unfortunately, what I've seen many organizations do is there's this idea, well, just hire a person of color because they, they must have the experience because they are a person of color. And yet they may not have the business background to understand how to strategically drive change through DEI as a business structure, which then keeps it at a surface level, which then typically will lead to employees getting angry or losing or lacking trust, which then puts you right back in the same position that led to this role being created in the first place. So it's a vicious cycle. But I I think to go beyond race, you have to really, really dissect equity and inclusion in order to understand the B, once again, that gets neglected. And that is, do I belong? Lack of belonging coupled with bias and discrimination drove Jet Stubbs' career and business coach, creator of the Happy Career Formula, and co-creator of Mosaic Untold Lives, Secrets and True Stories from Women of Color, to leave behind her position at a major corporation making a lucrative salary. I got the dream job. I moved cities, which was hard enough itself because I didn't have any startup capital. So it was really just trying to scrap it all together and lots of tears and figuring out how to make it work and wanting to do it. Even finding a place to stay was hard because I didn't have any money for first and last month's rent. So I had to find a makeshift place to stay until I could save up after one or two months. And I started working at my first job. My supervisor, who liked me, thought she was helping me, was prejudiced. And I said that because every time I would say something that sounded like I wasn't from Canada, she'd make a buzzer noise and she'd correct me. Like Jeopardy, like, eh, you're wrong. Say it again say it again, say it again, until I said it in her words, the right way. And that was awful. So in my first 18 months on the job, I had that happen. My mom was stabbed 17 times in a robbery. And then I started to get physically sick. But at the same time, I received promotions. I was receiving bonuses about every month, every other month that would increase my salary by about 50 to 60%. I started leading I was 21 when I graduated, 22 when it, by the time I was taking on all these responsibilities. And I, I just, I wasn't holding it together. I was excelling professionally based on the work that I was doing on paper, but I was vomiting in the bathrooms <laughs> in, during my lunch breaks. And just the stress was getting to me and everybody could see it on my face, everybody. And they were like, what is wrong? And I didn't know who I could speak to. And I just couldn't do it anymore. I was like, there's no money that's worth it. Kwaisi also walked away from a high-paced, high-paying job because he couldn't tolerate workplace discrimination. But only after years and years of bumping up against the concrete ceiling. I worked my way up from the employee level to a senior level 
in a Fortune 300 company, but it took me three times as long to do that as it did my white counterparts. For decades, for, for years, I watched others who were less qualified, had similar or in some cases, lower performance results than I did. I watched them get promoted over and over and over and over and over and over again. And I'll give you an example. Detroit opened up. I was in Pittsburgh at the time. I was trying to become a director of operations. So a region in Detroit opened up. Nobody wanted it because those were tough units to run. A lot of them were inner city units. And so nobody else wanted it. Well, guess who they called? Seven years later, after I had my first interview for that position, they called me. So I get handed a, I, I could characterize it as a, a basket full of lemons. But what I found within myself, this is this, at the same time, I'm going through this spiritual transformation. And that helped me to turn those lemons into some lemonade. And we were able to put Detroit on the map. People were paying attention to Detroit. Detroit was making lots of money. Customer satisfaction was up in Detroit. And they were like, what is going on? How did you do that? But you see that the impact of the discrimination took its toll. And I ended up with PTSD back in 2011. Actually, I had it way before that, didn't know it. But in 2011, I couldn't take it anymore. And I won't get into the details of the kind of discrimination that I was experiencing, like my boss sending me pictures of Obama telling me how much he hates him. And then in meetings, telling me that I remind him of Obama and, and daring me to speak up. It was horrible. So I had a, a mental breakdown and uh, went into the hospital and realized that I couldn't work there anymore. So I left a $200,000 a year job in the middle of a recession because I couldn't take it anymore. Whether people leave or stay within systems that are designed around subjugation, there's a cost. I feel sometimes a sense of obligation that if I don't do this, or if I don't give my all, who else is going to do it? Or, or I need to pay it forward for all of these individuals who are voiceless or who don't have the access to do it in the same way that I can. The downfall of that is your body at some point will shut you down if you don't shut down. And it, it does. It weighs down on you. I'm not exempt like anyone else. Uh, from being able to experience the weight of this world. And then when you have almost unrealistic expectations that are put on you that accompany the nature of the work, it can drain you. It can be even more challenging if you're striving within systems where you don't have any examples of success that look like you. That wasn't the case for Jet Stubbs, who was born and raised in the Bahamas and never faced anti-Black bias until she moved to Canada at the age of 17. One of the obstacles that I find for a lot of people I work with is if they don't come from communities where they've seen people like them be successful. So I was fortunate in the sense I came from a predominantly Black country. And the prime minister is black. My parents are like black entrepreneurs. My aunties and uncles are successful. There's black ownership. And that's very different when I worked with my Canadian born counterparts who may have grown up in community housing. And that's not universal. Like not every black person in Canada would have grown up in community housing or subsidized housing. But if you saw that and you didn't see people that looked like you achieving a certain level of success, 
when you get to the point, even if I teach you the skills for marketing yourself and selling yourself, you start to have like a panic attack. Can I actually achieve this? I have never seen anybody I look like achieve this level of success. I've never seen anybody who looks like me. If you're a woman of color and you have that double thing, you're you can experience sexism and racism. And if you're young, ageism, sexism, and racism. Or if you're on the older spectrum, ageism, sexism, and racism. So you can experience these intersections of discrimination. And like you'll hear people say some crazy things. Like I had somebody tell me, like they just assumed because I was black, I had an absentee father. Just automatic assumption. They were like, oh yeah, but your father wasn't in your life. I was like, if you told my father that, you would be like, and there's nothing wrong if you come from that environment. But just to make that assumption about somebody based on the color of their skin, it's ludicrous. Like, and I was in disbelief, but to have that be what you are surrounded by growing up and that be the perception that people have of you when you are going to school, it changes how you see yourself and your own potential. And even for those who know their potential innately and who are motivated to strive beyond their early life circumstances, professional obstacles, and the impediment of other people's ignorance, there can be a gap between ambition and education. Hi, Zach James here, partner and marketing manager of the Demystifying Diversity podcast. And I wanted to share with you, our valued listeners, some of the awesome things we're doing in the DEI space. Myself, Darylise, and the whole Demystifying Diversity team are facilitating corporate trainings, constructive conversations, workshops, one-on-one coaching sessions, and so much more. To find out how you can work with us, whether you're an individual or representing a corporation, school, or any other organization, head over to DemystifyingDiversityPodcast.com backslash services to fill out our DEI survey. Darylise is a DEI subject matter expert, having interviewed over 200 people, having become a TEDx speaker, as well as the author of Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. Together, we can help you up-level your DEI skills to improve your profitability, productivity, and interpersonal relationships. So, connect with us at DemystifyingDiversityPodcast.com backslash services and get yourself a copy of Darylise's book, Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. And uh, don't forget, buy the workbook too. Happy learning. Hooks, a Haitian-American musician, producer, rapper, and longtime music industry professional, told me that there's a gap between talent and power that allows for many up-and-coming artists to be exploited because they don't have experience in the music industry or education about it. To be honest, I think a lot of artists have some kind of lack of education when it comes to, to the business, you know. I've been doing this since I was 15, and it's something I truly love. I think artists need to get a little more educated when it comes down to doing this because, you know, you might have a great song, but you don't know what avenues to take, who's out there that that can help you. And you got a lot of people that's taking advantage of people. You know, you got videographers, artists, producers, you know what I'm saying? It's just a lot of people. And, you know, the more educated you are about the business, the more opportunities that you might not let pass you by. 
Will also spoke about education as the bridge from ambition to empowerment, and he told me that educating others is what he seeks to do at Rec Philly. I'd like to believe we're teaching freedom, and the branding and the business building is really just a tool to get to the freedom, right? Like, I I believe that, like, freedom is the goal, but cash is, is the gas, right, to get us there. Lack of freedom for many Black Americans in the present is inextricably linked to lack of freedom in the past. And the reality is, as a Black person in America, of course we were never given the ability to build freedom because we were never given the ability to build wealth. And we weren't given the ability to build wealth because when it all started, we were the wealth. So from that perspective, I personally believe that, like, As a person of color, my job to a certain degree in this whole struggle is to be able to be able to build, create and capture that wealth for myself. Because for me, it can't help but to be personal because I know that before there was wealth in America, people that look like me were it. Like we as black people came over to America on a balance sheet. So if we can come over here as an asset because someone, you know, thought that we were valuable in their wealth creation, I think now the name of the game is literally to understand that as a person of color, I am the bag. I just got to secure myself, right? So a lot of young people will say, yeah, secure the bag, secure the bag. But the real game of this whole thing is how do I do the inner work enough to secure myself to understand that I'm already inherently valuable? I don't need the validation of that greater system to tell me what I'm worth. Unfortunately, many Black Americans don't have the opportunity to step outside the system. Here is Daniil Chambers, founder of I Spy Injustice, who considers her primary identity to be that of problem solver. It's like, how do you pull yourself up by your bootstraps when you don't have boots? Like, you can't because you don't have them. It just doesn't work like that. It's just like... Realistically speaking, people who have changed, and myself included, like, I've had things that I've needed to change about myself, right? And, like, I've had to go through processes. I've had to go to therapy. I've had to, like, spend the time and have the desire to change. The American dream, right? You want to, like, be able to, like, exist and be safe and happy for you. But the end of the day is that you live among people. The community is very important, and I feel like we've lost sight of that. So how do we recenter a sense of community to understand that America was built through stolen labor on stolen land, and that we need to dismantle the systems that created that and arose out of that and include people in meaningful ways? People who were either previously unaware or willfully ignorant about systemic suppression do seem to be waking up to the reality of what many Black and brown people have been and still are up against. Here is Don Wyatt, John M. McArdle Jr. Distinguished Professor at Middlebury College. Sometimes there's a kind of crystallizing moment when something that has been so much assumed and taken for granted in the negative is laid exposed for everyone, such that they can't really avoid it anymore, and they have to face it and look at it. And I think as much as any moment that I can think of, certainly the murder of, and I will, I'm one of those who's subscribed originally and certainly after the verdict, 
uh, subscribes to the view that it was a murder. The murder of George Floyd was that kind of moment. There are a number of other reinforcing developments. Ahmad Arbery down in Georgia, also something as visceral as uh, the assault on the Capitol building. This insurrection laid bare much of the ugliness of the legacy of racism in this country. And I think you can turn away from that only with extreme effort or callousness. And for those of us who aren't turning away, awareness isn't enough. Because there are those who are taking action in a direction of continued subjugation and discrimination, who are weaponizing ignorance in the form of overt hatred. Don Wyatt and I continued to speak about the January 6th assault on the Capitol. The way I'm inclined to think about it is that individuals who might have been inclined toward such behavior in the past, even the recent past, have felt somehow liberated, freed to basically act on their inclinations. And it's almost like this violence has uh, developed a kind of vogue for some folks. And I just don't know how to, I don't know how to frame it other than it's a, a case of America at its worst. We watched horrified as following the murder of George Floyd, there were those who used it as a justification for racism and those who matched violence with violence. Around May or June of like last year of 2020, everything was going on with the protests from the Black Lives Matter. Some were like, I don't know like how, what to call that whole period of time when things were just like, it was just one thing after the next, news report after news report, and then this not really having the clarity of what was even going on at the time because there's just all of these different voices like, coming out and then just like the other people that were participating in the movement not really contributing to the actual black lives matter movement and kind of like how the whole message kind of got co-opted by groups of people who like went around and like did looting did the like other things and then within that now people were like justifying different like things happening like the looting and and all that and like the main message was just missing so i saw it as a revolution and i also saw it as chaos because of the fact that other people were taking the the name of justice and then like taking their own self-interest and like serving that i had had a series of different conversations with people just like understanding their opinions and trying to like comb through and like actually try to figure out all right what's the solution from this because it's just like everyone can have an opinion but the fact is that there's a need for change following the callous murder of george floyd by then police officer derek chauvin Brittany monet found herself struggling to make sense of what had happened and also wanting to use her music to inspire systemic change by changing hearts and minds with the song better which she says came about as a reaction to George Floyd's murder. Watching that was probably one of the most heart-wrenching things I've ever seen in my life. And obviously, George Floyd was a black man. Derek Chauvin was a white man kneeling on him. But you're looking at it like, these are two humans. You know what I'm saying? Like, what is in that human's heart, referring to Derek, what's in that man's heart that is making him almost enjoy this exchange right here? 
And that, to me, regardless if you're black, brown, purple, man, woman, homosexual, heterosexual, whatever, whatever part of the world you're in, from a human standpoint, it's like, man, how can you live with yourself? I don't know how someone lives with themselves after kneeling on another human's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds, while that person cries out for mercy, or while spectators cry and shout for them to stop. But it's probably the same internal mechanism that allowed other people to beat and whip and lynch and murder and enslave others based solely on the color of their skin. Floyd's murder brought home how close the past is to the present and the impact unchecked racism has had and will continue to have on Black lives, including ending them. For some reason, just seeing the monstrosity, if you will, of the police officer just kneeling on George Floyd's neck, it just took me over the edge. I, and to be 100% honest, I went through like a mini depression because it was so heavy on me. And I was just, I'm over this. I know it's been way worse in the past, but I can only speak on my experience and what I'm exposed to. And I was just, I was to the point where I was just like, I'm freaking over this. I have a father. I have really great male friends. I have a younger brother. And, you know, we can't even stop at females because I'm a black woman and I think of women like Breonna Taylor. I was just like, I've had enough. I'm just over this. And it was almost like God was like, well, write about it and tell me how you feel. And so that was my way of coping in the moment and dealing with my mini depression, if you will, because just everything piling up, it just started weighing really, really heavy on me. And that first line, God, can you hear me? How much more of this are we supposed to take? That was a genuine question that I had in that moment. It doesn't just stop in our black communities, but here in the U.S., there's a huge discrepancy in how black people are treated by the system versus others. The systemic disparities and personal indignities that people experience due to systemic racism are glaring, and there can never be any real justice to atone for what many have suffered. Here's Ghetto Don Visionary again. So pretty much the current circumstances in the world is grim. From George Floyd to, you know, even though that Derek, whatever his name is, got convicted, it's a victory, but it's bittersweet. It's not bringing George Floyd back. So my commitment with the intention of that song, Racist Anonymous, is to open people's eyes up and to convict people to be like, you know what, maybe you do have some racist tendencies in you because, you know, somebody's son shot up Colorado's uh, shopping center. Somebody's son shot up those Asian people in Atlanta. Somebody's son killed Ahmaud Arbery, and so on and so forth. It's not just police brutality, but it's a lot of that. I work in Manhattan on the Upper East Side, and last year when I'm walking up the block to go to work, white women held their pocketbooks, and that's racist. Or they walked across the street because they seen a Spanish man or a black man or whatever the case may be, it's racism. Or maybe in my mannerisms, and I'm guilty of doing the same thing. Like, what you looking at me like that for? Or like, you know what I'm saying? Like, you don't belong in this neighborhood. What are you doing in this neighborhood? So there's a lot of profiling. There's a lot of systematic racism. So the point that I was trying to make is just to try to bring it out to the world. And the spiritual side of it is, that I just want the world to see this as a problem and to get convicted and maybe change their ways for future generations or maybe even this generation. 
If we want to change, the first step is getting honest with ourselves about where we've been and where we currently are. But understanding how the system works and how to locate ourselves within it from a historical context doesn't change the brokenness of that system, and it doesn't ensure a person's safety. Hi, listeners. Zach here. Darylise and I are so grateful you're listening to the Demystifying Diversity podcast. We want to answer your questions about topics related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And this season, during each of our question and answer episodes, we'll be joined by a special guest expert who can also weigh in on whatever questions you have. So call us at 844-888-8148 and leave us a message with your question or drop us a note through our website at demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com. Who knows, your voice or your question might make it into one of our Q&A episodes. Here's Don Trahan again. Sometimes I think people get sidetracked because of the accolades, because of the socioeconomic status, and they can have a perception that you're disconnected and you're not. And it keeps me grounded because I am not naive to the fact that while I understand the business side, how can we make money? save money and optimize our position in the market, especially in a global environment, you know, I can speak to that, but that's, that's business. Doesn't mean that when I'm not in that context, the moment that I walk outside, I may lose my life. Dr. Don is right. According to a report from Harvard School of Public Health, Black Americans are 3.23 times more likely than white Americans to be killed by police, which becomes even more staggering when you consider that Black Americans only comprise roughly 13 to 14 percent of the U.S. population. And even beyond overt violence, systemic racism leads to lower life expectancies for Black Americans, with Black men in particular living an average of five years less than their white counterparts. And some of that has to do with minority stress that comes from being exploited and discriminated against. We've moved from slavery to segregation to struggle to secrecy. Walter told Zach and me about his time working for IBM. I had this racist manager, and I knew he was racist. And IBM had a policy that you did not discuss your salary with anybody but your boss. You could discuss it with your immediate manager or the manager above that, but not with anybody else. So I didn't know what anybody was making. And usually your manager negotiates a promotion, but I negotiated my own promotion into the Ed Center. And after I was there six months, I got a raise. Now I got a promotion when I went there at a 10% raise. Six months later, I get another raise. Okay. Six months later, I got another raise. Six months after that, I got another raise. And I said to my manager, I said, wait a minute. I got a promotion when I came here, two steps. And now I've gotten two raises. You're giving me a third raise. Why? Something's going on. And he says, confidentially? And I said, yeah. And you have to have respect and maintain it that if somebody says it's confidential, you don't repeat it. He told me that my previous manager, the racist one, had me below scale. He was paying me less money than he should have paid me based on my ratings and my my salary level. I was below the grid. IBM had a five-step grid. Five was unsatisfactory. Four was minimum, et cetera. And based upon what your job steps were and what your rating was, you should have been paid within a certain range. 
I was below it. But because you can't talk to anybody, if I talk to somebody else and they tell me what their salary is and I repeat that, we could both get fired because that was a condition of employment that you didn't discuss salary. So that racist manager was paying me below what I should have been paid. Racism impacts every facet of society, from those who die physically to those who experience repeated trauma. And sometimes it seems as if even those who would claim to be allies are looking to exploit Black pain. LaToya has bumped up against this as both an editor and an agent. I had submitted something to an editor and she responded that, you know, she felt like my client could go deeper. And I was wondering to myself, like at first, you know, I was like, what does she mean by go deeper? Like my client writes lighthearted women's fiction and romance. So the project that she was doing, like she was doing mostly romance and this was her first foray into women's fiction, but it was very lighthearted romantic comedy. And so I'm like, why would she need to go deeper? And then I said, oh, because she's not talking race, because it's not a slave narrative, because it's not really So I said, you know what? I'm glad you passed on it because clearly you're not the editor for this project. And why is it that we only have to be about our pain and that we can't just write lighthearted stories or this particular type of story without explaining to you what being Black means? She doesn't write deep. Like, I mean, yes, you deal with different issues and emotional drama. I don't mean it like that. But I felt like her comment was like, I want her to dig deeper. And I'm like, deeper into what? Like it's a rom-com. You know, like what would she be digging deeper into? You're basically trying to tell me the story to write because you don't think it's black enough. That's a problem. And what does that really mean? What does black enough mean to you? And all I could think of is, again, exploiting black pain, which is not to knock anyone who does that. But this is not that. It's you're doing it a disservice because you don't understand the material. And I was just so frustrated. And I feel like that when that whole thing was, I mean, I ended up selling it actually for six figures. So, I mean, (laughs) so I'm like, no problem, ma'am. But at the same time, you know, it was really frustrating. True. This episode of the Demystifying Diversity podcast has centered around stories of struggle and pain as a way of talking about how systems create structures that create cycles of suppression. But that's not the entire picture. Far from it. Next week, we'll be sharing about culture, community, healing, and love. In the meantime, Dr. Don had some valuable advice that he shared about in regards to business, but which I think can be extrapolated to a much larger context. Anyone who really wants to do this seriously, you need to be prepared to disrupt systems. I would challenge everyone to eliminate the phrase, we've always done it this way from your organizational culture. Because that way of thinking is part of the reason that DEI fails. If you do not have the opportunity to look towards other ways of doing things, then you are more likely than not going to have the same outcome, same results. So Be ready to change. Understand that it is a disruption. Understand that you're going to have to change how you've done things. And understand that there may be some loss that accompanies that change. Because if you're doing it correctly, there will be change. There will be discomfort. There will be movement 
that's not going to look or feel the way that it's always been in the past. But that's a part of the process. If we hope to evolve beyond the systems that perpetrate pain and strip certain people of agency and opportunity, we have to be willing to disrupt and dismantle systems. And we have to be able to see the connections between the past and the present. Thank you for listening to the Demystifying Diversity podcast. If you haven't already, please take a moment to like, subscribe, rate, and review. And if you'd like to ask us a question, which we'll try to answer in an upcoming Q&A episode, please call 844-888-8148 and leave your question or comment. Or you can visit our website, demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com, where you can get in touch, subscribe to our newsletter, and find out more about our DEI trainings, workshops, coaching, consulting, and other DEI services. A sincere thank you to those who so graciously lent their voices to this episode. Anthony Stevenson, Ghetto Don Visionary, Hooks, William Tyrone Toms, Kwaisi Asar, Walter Johnson, Latoya C. Smith, Brittany Chung Campbell, Brittany Monet, Don Trahan, Jet Stubbs, Daniil Chambers, and Don Wyatt. And thank you to our episode sponsors, Vita Supreme and Temple University's School of Sport, Tourism, and Hospitality Management. Every episode of the Demystifying Diversity podcast is written, reported, and produced by me, Dara Lise Lyons, with the invaluable assistance of Zach James, co-collaborator and marketing manager, Paul Kondo, assistant producer and editor, Jimmy Goodman at Leopard Studio, who provided additional audio recording, Stuart Cranes, production and development assistant, and Sunny Taylor, content editor and creative collaborator. This episode includes reporting by Anna Marie Jones. The music you heard is Better by Brittany Monet. If you'd like to explore these topics outside of the podcast, pick up a copy of Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. Join us next week, and in the meantime, let's keep trying to make this a better, more inclusive world.